Hey, it's Travis. Our final trespasses, and it has a new name and logo. Ooh, what does it mean? Uh, you'll see. Pacific came up with nickel and crime. I can't remember if I mentioned that or not. He wanted the whole thing to be called that, but here we are. Anne has done a brilliant job as our Cecilia Burnham. Thank you, Anne. Aaron Lillis returns as a new character, which indicates nothing more than we liked what she did and thought she'd be good for a new role. Joining us are Alastair Mackey and Antoinette Barry Snowden, who each showcase how much of a character can be delivered with just a few pages of airtime. Thank you to our entire cast for bringing all four episodes of Trespasses to life. We'll definitely have to do another miniseries again. This was bonkers fun. But too much fun can be hazardous to your health, which is exactly why I am putting the hotel on a little hiatus for a while. We've been at this pretty much nonstop for about three years, and uh, Mama needs a break from so, so, so much fun. I don't know how much more fun I can take before I lock myself in a supply closet. While we're on break, though, the production team will still be hard at work because we're all kind of shitty at taking breaks. So while there will be no bonus episode or new crew episode in April, we will still be producing those episodes for Patreon starting again in May. I will also be releasing old bonus episodes on the main feed so I can continue to communicate the news of the world to all of you. Izzy is working on designs for merch, Ibis and Jay still have a couple special projects up their sleeves, and we've scooped up Lily, known to you as Manx Birdcage Moss, as a summer intern to get our transcripts and etc. fixed up. Uh, all of that is later this year, as they are all taking a break too, of course. Working on the zine! That's right, the guest book is finally here! Nearly! I have sent off the thing to the printers, so if you haven't grabbed your pre-order on our Etsy store, do that now. We will also be selling our digital copies starting April 1st, also on our Etsy store. Links on our socials, so make sure you're following us on Twitter and Instagram while those are still technically working, and we are also on Tumblr. Check us out to see what kind of stuff I post when there's nothing on the calendar. This is a huge milestone for the show, and getting to see the actual finished guest book has been th thrilling. This thing is no joke. Ibis and Jay really bashed their heads against the wall and ground themselves into little piles of dust to get it finished, and it really shows in the final product. It is not possible to overstate how much this could not have been done without their dedication and creativity. Thank you, gents. And thank you to all our artists who contributed to the first ever issue of The Guest Book. Keep an eye on those mailboxes for your copy. Also in this issue of The Guest Book are the fanfic stories The Duffields by Floral Punk and an excerpt from Birdcage by Lily, as those are the infamous first two fanfictions I read that made me swear off fanfiction because they were just too good and too interesting. Plus, we have included a third story by Jay, who also designed almost the entire zine single-handedly. Seriously, friends, if you can swing it, get the physical copy. It's stunning and filled page to page with love. And last thing before I go, I am reminding all of you that Hotel in Espanol drops its first two episodes on April 10th. Even if you don't speak Spanish, subscribe, listen, share it around. The more noise we make for her, the more attention she'll get. And to that end, please check out our Patreon. We have added a new tier just for Hotel in Espanol to make sure we can get that second season. Whew! That was a long one. You should hear the rough cut. I swore a bunch. 
Thank you for sticking with me to the end. Thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting. And thank you for just being around. Sometimes it can feel a little like talking into a microphone in an empty room. Okay, here's the hotel and Espanol trailer again. Por que me encanta. Gracias por escuchar. No está embrujado. No es el infierno. Es el hotel. Puede parecer de cinco estrellas o a veces motel de mala muerte. Cada noche el hotel cambia de forma abriendo sus puertas a todo aquel que lo necesite. Víctimas y, y victimarios. El hotel no rechaza a nadie. La única regla es que nadie, 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 nadie puede irse. Ni siquiera el personal. ¿Te atreves a entrar? Hotel en Español. Disponible gratis en Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Amazon Music y donde sea que escuches podcasts. I used to believe the reality we know is a mirror and that the truth lies behind it, visible through the cracks and past the warped reflection we see. But it is really another world entirely. One laid over our own, yet infinitely far away. A place we could see if we only learned how. I am on a journey to that place, and I invite you to come with me until the end. I am Cecilia Burnham, and this is Trespasses. Helen Krauser, Jacob Withers, Justin Wynn. Three people whose vanishings encompassed a certain set of criteria. From a list of many others matching the same pattern, another name, Poppy Delane, who at the age of 18 disappeared in Los Angeles in 2007. Poppy's family were outspoken about the police failure to find her. Their daughter was one of the less missing, they said. She was African-American, and so her case commanded far fewer column inches than a similar incident would have with a white victim, and, claimed her family and community leaders, far less enthusiasm on the part of the authorities. Perhaps it is proof of their objections that Poppy's case is barely known outside Los Angeles, and even then it was soon swamped by the many crimes of the West Coast metropolis. Poppy was a good kid, they say, but she struggled. She wasn't dumb, but she didn't fit comfortably into the public school system, and behavioral problems hindered her at every step. She completed high school but without a scholarship, so college was out of the question for her low-income family. Poppy lived with her parents and three siblings in the Florence neighborhood of South L.A. and worked at a nearby diner as a waitress and sometimes short-order cook. Her family insists she was not involved in criminality, but the police have implied otherwise on the rare occasions they address the case publicly. Poppy's case was frustrating for me. I wanted to understand who she was, but Poppy Delane seemed to want to remain unknown. 
I found the platitudes now intimately familiar to me of a family devastated by their loss, with a hole in the middle where their loved one used to be, and how not knowing was the worst part. I heard of a bright young girl, well-liked and good-natured, and recognized the words that are reeled out when nobody knows what to say. I saw a home video of a high school basketball game. Poppy was on the girls' team, and from the grainy, chaotic action, I saw her aggression and strong-headedness. Not qualities a crime victim is credited with in the days after an incident, but not necessarily bad ones, either. She was all pace and forward motion. Not convenient or submissive. The kind of child they call willful or difficult. But that makes for the kind of adult who is assertive and confident. Her school records bore that out, full of regrets about how Poppy was disruptive and poorly behaved, easily bored, disobedient. She talked back. She spoke her mind. A grown-up Poppy would have known her worth and been unapologetic about who she was. Even from these unsatisfactory glimpses of her, I felt I knew much more than the paltry media coverage of her disappearance would allow. The world begrudged Poppy Delane a true and fair description, but she came through anyway, refusing to sit down and shut up. The details of her disappearance were similarly scant. Her family reported her missing after she failed to return home from her evening shift at the diner where she sometimes worked after school. The LAPD had the family wait until the next day before they would accept her as a missing person. Poppy's mother, Sherelle, described how the police officer she spoke to said Poppy was probably out partying somewhere and would turn up as soon as she got hungry. When she did not, Sherelle was told Poppy was a runaway. Sherelle knew her daughter had not simply walked out of her family's life. Things were far from perfect, but her home was stable and loving. I wanted to feel what Sherelle Delane did, the sense of who her daughter was, and why her disappearance was more than a selfish act of rebellion or wanderlust. Poppy left few permanent marks on the world, but I was able to find a video posted online of a high school show where students sang, played instruments, and recited poems. Poppy Delane was one of the students performing, and while it was a few years before her disappearance, it was the closest I could get to hearing from Poppy herself. I'd rather dice on the corner than know my future for sure. Rather guess in the dark than see it all written down. I have certainty in one hand, eclipsing doubt with gold. Chaos in the other where the map is only blank. I choose chaos every moment and with everything I do. Reality is drifting on the tide. The truth is blowing on the random breeze. No authentic life was ever lived to script. And every true experience is brought to us by fate. Keep your milestones. Here at 20, there at 25. 
I'll hurtle past them, smiling with no plan or plot in mind. It's the easy thing to grind the edges off the way we live. So it slides so smooth along the path that's laid ahead for us. I don't do things easy. I don't walk the road. I'll fight through the wilderness where truth can still be found. Poppy was still out of reach. It was maddening to feel her so close and yet still be separated from her by the strange circumstances of her absence. Even so, it gave me some solace to think I had at least tried harder than the few journalists and officials who had commented on the case publicly. The prickly, difficult girl was more to me now than a face and a name. She was not easy to teach or raise, perhaps, but I feel she was easy to respect. The LAPD used Poppy's cell phone location to build up a timeline of her movements as it became clear she was neither partying nor a runaway. She had headed from the diner not directly home, but north towards downtown via city bus. Security camera footage and eyewitnesses saw nothing unusual in the young woman quietly traveling towards the commercial heart of the city. In the clearer shots from the cameras, Poppy Delane jumped out as a young woman with long dreadlocks and a slight but tall frame, wearing a bomber jacket and black leggings. She wore a red canvas backpack and carried a black briefcase in one hand. Her family said she did not own a black briefcase, and neither did any family members. Her employers and co-workers also said they had no knowledge of it. Nobody who knew her had seen her with it before. She made her way to the Hermitage de l'Am, a boutique hotel in downtown Los Angeles. This high-end hotel has a number of themed rooms and suites, each the creation of an interior designer. Its rooms included the nautical suite, with furniture of distressed wood and walls covered in seashells, and the lip-gloss room, done out in vivid scarlet with blood-red tiles in the bathroom and a sofa in the shape of a pair of magenta lips. The presidential suite was finished in bare brick with a spanking bench and wooden St. Andrew's cross with leather shackles for the ankles and wrists. The cottage core room looked like the kitchen of a small country farmhouse, all pine and handmade porcelain. The stargazer room was at the corner of the building with a sliding dome and a telescope. The Hermitage had a long waiting list. It was exclusive. Above all, it was expensive. The owners marketed through fashion magazines and the sightings of celebrities who were comped to stay there. It was for the wealthy and fashion conscious. It was well beyond Poppy Delane's means. Just as significantly, Poppy would have hated it. The Hermitage de l'Am was a false and pretentious place a million miles from the real. But she went there on February 12, 2007, as proven by the cameras from the offices across the street. The camera has a good view of the doors. While the footage is from a distance, it clearly shows the young woman from the earlier sightings on the bus. She pushes open the door with her free hand, the other still holding the briefcase. Then, she is gone. 
Unlike Noreen or Justin Wen, Poppy Delane did not have a booking at the Hermitage de l'Homme. The staff claimed not to have seen her, including the concierge and the receptionist at the front desk, who, it can be assumed, would have remembered such an atypical guest. The circumstances of Poppy's disappearance matched those of the others. But a vanishing involving a hotel wasn't enough on its own. I had come to recognize a certain aura that defined a case as one on the path towards the truth. My understanding began to crystallize when, as I was researching the criminal climate of Los Angeles at the time, I came across the reminiscences of a former ATF agent who had worked in the agency's L.A. field office at the time. Leona Garza wasn't directly involved in Poppy Delane's case, but her experiences touched on it in a way I suspect very few have realized before. Hey, this is Travis with a brief ad break. Thanks for listening. Now back to the hotel. This is uh, early 07, and I was on gang and criminal intelligence then. There was a smuggling pipeline through California across the border into Mexico. Guns going south, drugs going north, plenty of people and money both ways. There's a story about how it all started. I can't say for sure it's true because everyone involved is dead. Maybe it's more of a fairy tale, like a just-so story to explain why it all went to shit. We only started hearing about it a long time after the event, so there's a good chance it's nothing like what actually happened. Still, it's the best we've got. Bridger Marks was a gun dealer who sold to straw buyers getting U.S.-made guns to the cartels in Mexico. Whenever the cartels went to war, guys like Marks made big business. He was working with a smuggling outfit near the border run by a guy named Jesus Contreras, who was strictly small-time and did outsourced work for guys like Marks. So Contreras loses a van full of guns that Marks had entrusted to him. Contreras says it was hijacked. Maybe it was, doesn't really matter. What mattered was, Contreras was supposed to pay Marks for the loss, and that's almost a quarter of a million bucks. The exchange is supposed to happen in LA in a hotel somewhere. We never found out exactly where. The money was in used bills in a suitcase, and Marks never gets his suitcase. Contreras swears he sent the courier with it. Marks doesn't believe him and assumes Contreras has stolen his guns. Marks decides to show everyone what happens to people who steal from him, and he has Contreras killed. No one knows who pulled the trigger, but the word definitely came from Bridger Marks. So far, so simple. The thing is, Jesus Contreras is married to the daughter of Harold Tennyson, a vicious old bastard who started out cooking acid for hippies in the 70s. Are you taking notes? Anyway, Tennyson sees Contreras as one of his guys and takes the hit real personal. He calls in some old drug trade contacts, and suddenly Bridger Marks and two of his money men turn up dead in a burned-out car in the desert. So now, Bridger Marks is dead. We are trying to keep track of all this at the time, but it moved too quickly to keep ahead of it. The thing is, Marks had the gun pipeline tied down. Now there's a vacuum. Two outfits want to fill it. The Sicario Sonora out of northern Mexico and a bunch of buzz-cut militiamen calling themselves the Bear Republic Defense Force. 
They both want to take over Marx's smuggling route, and neither wants to back down. Before we know it, the cops in Mexico are fishing three dead cartel members out of the sea off Rosarito Beach. Then, a Bear Republic lieutenant is found dead in a parking lot in Chula Vista minus his tongue. That's just the start. More outfits get drawn in on both sides of the border. It's the worst we've ever seen, as bad as one of those cartel wars. Everyone's got guns. We never stopped finding the bodies. And the punchline to all this? They found the goddamn suitcase. The suitcase Leona Garza mentioned was found in an alleyway behind an expensive restaurant in downtown L.A., a couple of blocks from the Hermitage de l'Homme. It certainly looks like the one Poppy Delane was carrying in the camera footage of her final journey. The police thought it was probably the same one, too, but were unable to find any trace or other evidence suggesting where she had gone or who else might have been involved in her disappearance. Inside the suitcase was $260,000 in used bills and a key with a tag marked 606. The police concluded that Poppy Delane was transporting the money and was killed for it. The find effectively confirmed to them that Poppy was involved in something criminal, which wiped out what little interest they had in finding her. Putting Poppy together with the underworld conflict recalled by Agent Garza was only done many years after the disappearance, and it's not even certain anyone at the LAPD made the connection. If they did, it didn't lead to Poppy's case being reopened or re-examined. Everyone involved was either missing or dead, and as far as the LAPD was concerned, it would have only confirmed their assumptions that Poppy Delane was mixed up in something dangerous and paid the price. I, however, was asking very different questions. It's not that I didn't care what happened to Poppy, or where she went. More that my focus was on another type of investigation. I wasn't looking for a conviction or an improvement in case completion rates. I wanted to see if Poppy's disappearance was another step on the path towards that reality I had glimpsed in similar cases. It didn't matter to me that the perpetrators and witnesses were dead. I wasn't taking this to court. So my investigation began where the LAPDs ended. Was Poppy Delane the courier for Jesus Contreras, heading to a downtown boutique hotel to hand over the money to Bridger Marx's underling? Maybe. Poppy's job hardly paid well, and she wouldn't be the only person in L.A. who needed money and took on risky activities to make ends meet. But again, there was no evidence she was involved in criminality. It was too easy an assumption to make. Would a smuggling gang entrust a quarter of a million dollars to a teenage girl with no criminal experience? Or did Poppy Delane come into the possession of the suitcase some other way? Perhaps the handover was supposed to happen in the diner, but it went wrong and it wound up in Poppy's hands. Maybe the courier lost it somehow, and Poppy just found it. It sounds a bit Cohen Brothers, sure, but that doesn't make it impossible. Looking into these questions, letting all the possibilities reach dead ends in my mind, made me realize the most important piece of Poppy's case. None of it mattered. The true defining feature of the cases I was following was not who did it, or why, 
or when or where. Instead, it was a factor the police and families involved never touched on. All these people were ready to disappear. For very different reasons, they were poised to vanish, as if fate saw them reaching the end of their story and cut off the unnecessary epilogue. Poppy Delane's disappearance caused a cascade of vengeance and death. It was the first domino to topple. At any other time, in any other way, it would have been a barely noticeable event, remembered only via the furious efforts of her family to keep her name alive. But for Poppy to disappear at the precise time she did, with all the other dominoes lined up and the suitcase of cash in her hand, turned her into the catalyst for a brutal underground war. If Poppy had not disappeared outside the Hermitage de l'Homme on that February evening, what would she have become? She was headstrong and forthright. Perhaps she would have become something very impressive. But Poppy Delane was ready to disappear. In her case, it was because she was at the point, probably the only one possible in her young life, where she would create a story beyond one she could write on her own. Another domino. Another piece to my puzzle. I would, of course, never explain this to Poppy's long-suffering family or anyone who cared for her. No one would appreciate hearing their daughter or sister was only meaningful because she was torn out of their lives or that her existence was irrelevant until she vanished. This was my investigation. For me. I regretted that I could not give Poppy's loved ones the solace the LAPD did not. But I was too far on my path now to step off it to console them with more platitudes about their missing child. Along with the perfect and inevitable timing of their disappearance, another link to all the cases was the evidence. A single item that remained of the vanished, which contained clues significant not to the police investigation, but to the thread that linked them all. The suitcase of money should have been the clue to crack the case, but instead, it led the LAPD nowhere. The key with the tag 606 looked significant, but the investigators could not find where it was from or what it meant. In particular, the Hermitage de l'Homme didn't have a room 606. It had 12 suites over three floors, none of them with that number. The key was examined, logged, pondered, and ultimately forgotten as irrelevant. That was, until I saw it. I had Noreen's appointment book with its lyrics for an unrecorded song named Wearisome's Rest. Jacob Withers' meeting with someone named Fairbanks. Justin Nguyen's voicemail telling him to be ready for the last frontier. Now Poppy's key to a room that wasn't there. It was the key, perhaps rather too poetically, that unlocked the cipher I had been presented with. I had everything I needed to reach the end of my path. Some school-age memory was sparked that reminded me 
The Last Frontier was the state nickname of Alaska. Alaska also contains a city called Fairbanks, and researching on a hunch confirmed there was a hotel there called Wearisome's Rest. It's a handsome old lodge used by hunters and hikers. Its arcane system for numbering its rooms and chalets includes a room 606. The path leads there, and I could no more avoid my destination than avoid the effects of gravity. My next episode will be recorded in room 606 of Wearisome's Rest in Fairbanks, Alaska. I do not know what I will find there, but I do know it will finally take me behind the mirror. I grew up on the streets of Baltimore. When the time came, I chose to join the men and women fighting to protect those streets. In my 30 years in the Baltimore Police Department, I saw death and corruption, and I saw justice served. I worked from a uniform beat to the offices of the Homicide Division, and now I'm bringing that experience to you. I'm Harry Nickel, former homicide detective, and this is Nickel and Crime. This week, I'm bringing you a case fresh from the police blotter. At the time of recording, it's unsolved, but it's too fascinating for me to let alone. I've been following this one from the moment it broke, and I want to bring you along with me as I watch it develop and see if I can uncover some facts myself. Noted investigative journalist and fellow true crime podcaster Cecilia Burnham flew to Alaska from her home in New York in pursuit of an investigation for a series on missing persons. What started as an investigation in unusual cases involving hotels has ended in her own unusual disappearance. We know she made it to the city of Fairbanks and booked a room at the Wearisome Rest Inn. Room 606, she insisted. But she never checked in. And now the Fairbanks PD are trying to find out what happened to her. This is no transient or runaway. Cecilia Burnham was a professional woman, experienced and educated with a career of exemplary journalism behind her. She had produced four episodes of her ongoing series, and for all intents and purposes, was on her way to producing more. Did she fall victim to whomever she was investigating, or was there more going on in her life that even her loved ones knew about? Did the cartels come after her, an angry family member? If there's truth to be found, I'll find it. And you'll be with me every step of the way. We'll retrace her steps, and the steps of everyone she investigated. We'll check her notes, and continue to follow her leads. There isn't much, and what I've got is confusing, contradictory, and often unexplainable. It's all questions, with very few enlightening answers. There is a new piece of evidence that brought me to this case. A possible witness, barely more than an urban legend. As I search for the truth of what happened to Cecilia Burnham, I'll also be chasing a ghost. Another question like a lit fuse. A name found in the last of Burnham's notes. Who is Judy Blashy? Nickel and Crime starred Anne Yatko as Cecilia Burnham. Alastair Mackey as Harry Nickel. 
Antoinette Barry Snowden as Poppy Delane, and Aaron Ellis as Leona Garza. Story by Pacific Obadiah, Travis McMaster, and Ben Counter. Written by Ben Counter. Music by Matt Roy Berger.